Today we're going to continue on in our Galatians series, Galatians Unearthed. And today I want to open up with a pretty special commentary from the scholar F.F. Bruce. And in this particular commentary, uh, he's actually going to make this distinction. He's going to make a distinction between two particular groups of Gentiles. And that's very important. And they're coming from the same place. And they both literally have this affinity. They identify with the Jewish faith. So they have an affinity for Israel. They have this love. And this is, this is where they're going. They're moving into the Jewish faith. However, what he mentions here this, with this distinction uh, is their placement. They don't end at the same place. They could have came from the same place, but they're not going to end there. And so what we're about to read, you want to be very careful to listen to uh, because it's actually going to impact the way you process the information that we look at as we continue in our study. And so in, in a very powerful way, in a historical context, in feeling the weight and gravity of what is actually happening, uh, in, in the controversy over this circumcision, you're really going to appreciate this. So, looking at this commentary, those Gentiles who went all the way in the direction of Judaism, but stopped short of circumcision, were treated as God-fears, okay, God-fears, still outside the fellowship and not admitted as proselytes to membership within it. So, look at this. He acknowledges two specific classifications of Gentiles. Both identify with the Jewish faith. You got God-fears on one hand, proselytes on the other. What is the difference? Well, see, understand something. Both of them, God-fears and proselytes, they both identify with the Jewish faith. They both go out and confess there's no other God but the God of Israel. They'll go through a mikvah. They'll even go through a mikvah. But that is where the God-fear stops. The only difference between the God-fear and the proselyte, circumcision. That is the only thing. But the effects of that can hardly be measured. It's dramatic. And so when you look at God-fears, when you look at proselytes, what you really should be seeing with the God-fears, you have a limited membership status. The proselyte has full membership status. A significant difference, right? Let's talk about this on a practical level. How would this really apply practically? Understand something. A God-fear who may love Israel and may be reciprocated back from Israel, they may say, oh, we love you too. Understand, they are not family. A God-fear is not family. They're not within the Jewish fellowship. They won't be intermarrying amongst Israel. They won't be allowed to keep the festivals. Like Passover, they're going to be prohibited from celebrating the Pesach, something that's so powerful for us today. No, they can't do that. In fact, I'll take it as far as say, guess what? They can't eat at all with the Jewish people. They're totally separated. There's this massive wall in between the God-fear, the one who fears the God of Israel, loves the Jewish nation, identifies with it. There's a massive wall between them and the Jewish people in Israel. 
In fact, you know, this is one of the things that I was mentioning the other week in regard to Peter. One of these marvels when, when, when he sees the sheet come down three times and the Lord commands him, go to these uncircumcised men. And Peter goes to Cornelius. He obeys the Lord. He goes to Cornelius. But you remember one of the first things that came out of his mouth. One of the first things that came out of his mouth was this. Then he said to him, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. This isn't kosher, Cornelius. What you see happening, there's a wall between us. You're uncircumcised. I am the circumcised. This is not lawful. This doesn't happen. You're excluded. See, that's the thing about God-fears. They have, they're excluded from the benefits of full membership. And I want, I, want, I want to preface something, and this is really important that you see this. Cornelius, in the first century, he is the very definition of a God-fear. He was a God-fear. Understand that. Go back and read the text in Acts chapter 10. You'll find that he had an amazing reputation amongst all those in Israel. They loved him. He loved them. Oh, and guess what? He called upon the God of Israel, and he prayed to him only. In fact, the only reason Peter was at his door is because the Lord answered his prayer. Cornelius was a God-fear, yet totally excluded, excluded from the promises given to Israel, excluded from the covenants given to Israel. You want to talk about a limited, limited membership status. That's what a God-fearer has. And this is controversial. You know, what, what Peter did here was not accepted. If you remember, I told you, see, Peter went up to Jerusalem. And guess what? His, his friends, his Jewish friends, caught wind of what he did. And how did they respond? Well, let's look at this. And when Peter came to Yerushalayim, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and you ate with them. What are you doing? This is not allowed. They have no access into our realm, into our family. Our family does not mix with the uncircumcised. Whereas, jump the tracks for a second. A proselyte is not at all treated like that. A proselyte has full membership status. All the promises, all the covenants, everything is afforded to them. They are not excluded from Passover. They celebrate the Passover. They're not excluded from eating with their fellow brethren, their fellow Jewish brethren. In fact, the Torah goes as far as to say that a proselyte, a Gentile, who goes through this full conversion, they receive the circumcision, they're an Ezrach. An Ezrach, a natural-born citizen. This is how they are to be considered. In other words, they're considered much a Jew as anyone else. Think about that. So here, on one hand, you have proselytes. Understand who they are, what's afforded to them. And on the other hand, you have God-fears, the uncircumcised. All right? With that said, let's break into this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch... Now, this is important, right? Why is Antioch important? I keep coming back to this. This is where it all started. All the controversy in regard to what did we do with the Gentiles who were coming into the faith? Do they have to be circumcised? And Paul and Barnabas stood and said, no, they absolutely don't. And then they went up to Jerusalem. All right, now, this is important, okay? 
And this, this was dealt with. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Think about this. Two of the most influential men that ever walked on planet Earth, going toe-to-toe. The Apostle Paul having to go and correct his brother. Unthinkable. Peter, let's talk about Peter so that we can appreciate why Paul is bringing this story into the mix. And I just let me say this. The fact that Paul is bringing this story into the mix, you need to appreciate the fact that he is pulling out every weapon at his disposal. This is a sign of desperation from Paul, that he is willing to do whatever it takes to turn these Galatians back to the truth of the gospel. This story bears so much weight when you think about who Peter was. Let's, okay, so we go through it. Peter was the guy that Yeshua said, behold, to you I give the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Peter was the guy that Yeshua said, you're going to sit on a throne judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Peter was the guy, only one of three, who was chosen to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration and literally be able to see Yeshua in a glorified state. Oh, with Moses and Elijah, Peter saw that. Peter was the guy who walked on water. Peter was the guy who people were running to get into his shadow so that they could be healed. Think about what Paul just dropped on the Galatians and the weight they would have felt. They knew who Peter was. You know, I could say it's funny as you go through the as you go through the, the, the early church fathers, and you always pick up little things, right? You start reading through them. One of the things that I'll never forget that I picked up as I went through the early church fathers was this passage. Some of the early church fathers couldn't handle it. This was so painful and so utterly unobtainable in regard to attempting to understand this that, do you know, they actually they created a different Peter. He's like, this, no, there's no way. This is not Simon Peter. This couldn't be because we can't wrap our minds around that. How could Paul and Peter, the two titans of the faith, how could they come up against one another? This is a different Peter. You can read Clement. You can read Eusebius and his commentary on it. They created a different Peter. He was a, just a different apostle. Make no mistake. This is not a different Peter. This is Simon Peter. And see, this is the weight that Paul is laying upon the Galatians. He knows the impact that this is. This is a shock to the system. This story. And him telling them, hey, I had to come onto the scene. And I want to be clear on something. The Lord was wise. Because not just anybody can go and correct Peter. That's not going to happen. You needed a man that, like the Apostle Paul who had such an anointing that garments were taken from his body and brought to other people and they were healed. Supernaturally, devils would fly out of people because of the anointing that was on Paul. And don't forget, Paul also raised the dead. That's the anointing. This is the kind of guy that had to come to deal with it. Now, imagine if you're the Galatians and you're reading this and you know who Peter is. Everyone in the kingdom who's a believer knows who Peter is. This is a guy that would be talked about behind closed doors of the magnitude of the things that the Lord was doing through him. It was awesome. And so the fact that he's laying this story on them is to rock their world. Flip them upside down. You're listening. You need to be, not that they probably weren't before after he chastised them so bad. 
They probably got their attention, but then you throw this story in, and it gets really, really intense. Looking at this, okay, so Peter had come to Antioch, and isn't that interesting? He came to Antioch. We know that this is where all the eruption was. We need to put something into context before we continue. Peter, we just read it in Acts 11. What happened to Peter when he was hanging out with the uncircumcised? How'd that go? Not well. He got ripped. They chastised him as soon as he got to Jerusalem. They were all over him. Remember that when we continue as we read on here to see why he was to be blamed. What did Peter do? For before certain men came from James. Where is James? Oh, he's in Jerusalem. The very same people who rebuked Peter in Acts chapter 11. For before he came from James, um, certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. The first thing I want you to recognize here, and this is the most critical part, Peter's own personal conviction, he had no reservation whatsoever about identifying these uncircumcised Gentiles as individuals that had full membership status. That is critical. This is not a God-fear status. He was eating with them. They were family. Peter's own personal conviction in what he knew to be true was he understood what God had done with them, how they had been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. They bore the seal of the righteousness of the faith. No reservation whatsoever, sitting down and eating with them. So what happened? Peter got scared, right? What does it say here at the end? He feared those who were of the circumcision. And you may think about it. I mean, you can, we, we can speculate all day long, but knowing the history here, knowing what happened in Acts chapter 10, understanding what happened as you turn into the Acts chapter 11, and the grilling that Peter received because he went and ate with them, on, on a level, I can appreciate why Peter did this. Do I really want to go through this again? Do I really want to cause and stir all this controversy? Might just be easier to quietly remove myself, right? You just quietly remove yourself. And I know these men coming up. I've already dealt with them. This is the expectation. Unfortunately, Peter withdrawing from the Gentiles was a tragedy. It was a tragedy on an epic level because what did Yeshua do? As he's doing this new thing, Yeshua, you read Ephesians 2, Yeshua broke down a middle wall of separation. And in the text, go and read it, and we'll be covering it later in more detail. But the text is very clear. He took two men, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, he created one new man. Think about that. That needs to resonate in your heart. You're going to understand this whole series. You have to understand what Yeshua really did by tearing down this middle wall of separation. To make Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised, one new man in him. Now that's really, really powerful. But here we have a situation Peter withdraws. <laughs> Isn't it just like the devil? 
See, with all the beautiful work that Yeshua goes out and does that is holy, righteous, pure, it's true, the devil will come in to destroy it. And the wall that he tore down, the devil's coming in to build back up. And that is exactly what's happening. This is exactly what we're seeing. So Paul has to come on the scene and he has to confront Peter for his actions about this separation. Now, to show you how serious, to show you how destructive Peter's actions really were, as we continue on, you're going to see the impact that this separation actually had because it didn't stop with Peter. It didn't stop with him at all. In fact, it was very infectious. The whole thing blew up. And this is, and this is exactly what Satan wanted. Galatians verse 13, 2 verse 13. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy all of the Jews, they see Peter get up and leave. And knowing the stature of Peter, knowing the anointing he has, what happened? All of them left. Total separation. So what I'm going to say, here you have all these Jews mingling like this with the uncircumcised, with the Gentiles, identifying with the truth of the gospel. Peter gets up and leaves. Total separation. This middle wall that had been torn down just got resurrected. Even Barnabas, think about that second. Barnabas was the guy who stood shoulder to shoulder with the apostle Paul to stand for the truth of the gospel, declaring that the Gentiles do not need to become circumcised to be saved. He was the one that was willing to stand against his own Jewish brother. And, and even Barnabas gets up and separates himself from the Gentiles. How does Paul handle this? Because this is really intense. I mean, think about the controversy. Feel the weight of this. See, they were reducing these Gentiles to God-fear status. Back to the limited status. So Paul comes on the scene and this is what he does. But when I saw that they were not straightforward, they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. I want to be very clear on something. This, this term, the truth of the gospel, this is a term that Paul explicitly utilizes in the context that, of the truth that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised to be saved, and yet they have full membership status. I challenge you, just go through this epistle. We're going to be covering this even more on a, on a deeper level. But we read in, in the last message, we came across this statement used in the exact same context in regard to the Gentiles in circumcision and the fact that they are still family, we're going to continue on later on in this epistle. This is the context by which Paul is utilizing this truth of the gospel. It's truth. What the Lord had done with the Gentiles in tearing this middle wall down, this was truth. It was powerful. So we continue. I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew... Live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Did you just hear what he said? Unfortunately, this is one of those passages that I have heard twisted and contorted and maligned in the most ugliest ways to where the people don't even understand. They get out of it. They don't know up from down. I, we need to cover this. We need to spend some time on this passage because there is a mountain of information embedded within that is going to bring some serious clarity 
to this study. What does he mean here? What is he really saying? Well, let's walk this. The first thing I want to do is draw your attention to, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles. I want to be very clear how Paul or Peter, Paul, Paul is using this term against Peter. Uh, Keep in mind, you have Paul, a Jew speaking to a Jew. He is utilizing these terms in a traditional Jewish fashion. In other words, a Jew is what? A Jew is someone who has God, the only one true God. A Jew is someone who has truth, right? In Romans 2, Paul talks about this, how magnificent the Jews really are because they're an instructor of foolish. They're a teacher of babes. They're a guide to the blind. They're a light in the darkness, This is what the term Jew means as Paul is speaking from Jew to Jew. This is what it's always meant to the Jew. Whereas Gentile, uncircumcised, the very term is anathema to them. The very definition is you don't have God. You don't have promises. You don't have covenants. You don't have the truth. Okay, that is critically important. You're going to see that what I'm expressing here and the way Paul's using these terms, he's going to continue to to do this. So this is not just some anomaly that this is how Paul's using these terms. This is very specific. Follow along. This is how he's, this this term Gentile is very, it's in the negative context. And think about David, right? When David went to fight the Goliath, he came and said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who comes and defies the armies of the living God? Goliath was described as a filthy, uncircumcised Gentile. Okay? With that said, let's walk through this and see what he's really saying. I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew, Peter, Peter, you're a Jew, you know truth, you have the one true God of Israel. If you live in the manner of Gentiles, whoa, alert, Paul is accusing him. If you live in a manner where you're not acknowledging the truth, which is what's at stake here, he's not acknowledging the truth of the gospel, and not as the Jews who receive the truth, who know the truth. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? I like some of the translations that say, how can you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? What an amazing statement. Okay, Peter, you're a Jew. Your whole purpose is to go out to make Gentiles to start living like Jews. How are you going to do that when you're not living like a Jew? You're not acknowledging the truth. You got it? Very powerful. But looking at this, there's something on a whole nother level that I want to address here. Because a lot of church history, unfortunately, has destroyed it. And that is this last statement. Compel Gentiles. Let me ask you the question. What were Jews doing in the first century as they went out to bring the gospel to the Gentiles? They were compelling them to live as Jews. Think about what's being said. Compelling them to live as Jews. They didn't go out. You didn't have Jews going out to the Gentiles so that they could make them Gentiles. They went out to make them Jews. That's what's happening here. Now, let me be clear after saying that. Am I referring to a physical Jew? Meaning circumcision. Obviously not. Am I even referring to traditional Orthodox Judaism with commandments of men? And how that it, which, you know, a lot of these commandments help them identify their culture. I am not. I am talking about they went out seeking to make these Gentiles biblical Jews. In other words, you need to walk out the faith in spirit and truth like us. 
Salvation is out from the Jews. Yeshua's own words, right? John, it's out from the Jews. They are the light of the world. They're the ones bringing the truth of the gospel. Amen? I want to take you to the book of Romans because Paul really unpacks this reality. And we don't want to miss it. So going to Romans chapter 2. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, pay attention. This is amazing. This is, this is some of the best commentary you're going to see. If an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? It's called the circumcision of the heart. It's called the spirit, right? And will not the physically uncircumcised, oh, if he walks away from the law, if he destroys the law, if he makes it null and void, it doesn't say that. If he fulfills the Torah. Think about what's being said here. If he fulfills the Torah, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. Verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. In other words, he's not a physical Jew, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Do you get it? He is a Jew. This, this uncircumcised individual that absolutely had no attachment into the family, that was totally separated from the promises and covenants, they were beyond the wall, is now being called family. They're now being identified as a Jew inwardly. Circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, meaning they weren't physically circumcised according to the Torah, according to the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Understand something. When the gospel went out in the first century and how it's supposed to be today, it should be Jews going out and even by today, by extension, Gentiles who are Jews to make other Jews. That is what it is. They're to be Jewish in heart. And that's why today you have, I mean, it's, it's really an amazing thing. You have Gentiles doing all sorts of weird, bizarre Jewish things like keeping Passover and Yom Kippur. And making a distinction between clean and unclean. Don't you love it? When you're in the store and you're saying, well, is this turkey bacon or is this real bacon? Well, no, this is, well, this is just bacon. This will be fine. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. is it pork? Well, yeah, you, you, don't, you don't like pork? No, it's, it's not about that. It's just, you know, this kind of a biblical thing, God. But what, are you Jewish? That's the thing. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. What, are you Jewish? Hey, you want to go get a coffee on Saturday? Uh, oh, you know what? I, I'm sorry, I can't. Can you pick another day? Why well, can't you do a Saturday? Well, you know, uh, it's the Shabbat, and I'm going to be at church or synagogue on that day. Well, what are you, Jewish? You, you know it gets funny, and this is my own personal experience. When I have Jewish people asking me, what are you, Jewish? <laughs> Why? Because you keep the righteous requirements of the Torah. Because you see, I want to adhere to the Shabbat. And I was talking to this Jewish woman. She literally out of her mouth said, what are you, Jewish? And I'm, what is the response? Let's talk about this. What should be our response? The response should be yes. Yes, I'm Jewish. Don't just leave it at that because you're going to let them off easy. And I know how many of you going, I don't want to get into this. I we're not going to do this right here. There's other people looking on, and I don't, you know, this is, could just open up different doors, and it's very uncomfortable, and this is how it is. Am I the only guy? 
getting, I've gotten really bold in my, my later years here, my aged years. But when you're asked, are you Jewish? You, you respond, yes. But here's the thing. I'm not a physically born Jew. I'm not a physical descendant of Abraham, but I'm a Jew in heart. The circumcision of the Torah uh, that I've been given is of the heart, and God has written his Torah in my heart, and I delight in it. I love the nation of Israel, and here's the thing. I call upon the Jewish Messiah. I want you to think about something. When, when you think about whether or not we're called to be Jews, what is the message? They're going out preaching, hey, you need to confess Yeshua of Nazareth. Well, he's a Jewish Messiah. Well, you're being grafted into a Jewish nation. You're being instructed by, oh, a Jewish book written by Jewish prophets. What are you, Jewish? Yes. Every aspect of the faith is completely Jewish. Continuing on in Galatians, going to chapter 2, verse 15. We who are Jews by nature, meaning we're physical descendants of Abraham, and not sinners of the Gentiles. Remember I told you how he's utilizing this term, Gentile, in a, in a, in a context? It's anathema. It's total wickedness. We're not of the sinners of the Gentiles because the Gentiles don't have truth. The Jews do. The Jews were given truth. The Jews were given the temple. The Jews were given the covenants. They were given the promises. Verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Messiah Yeshua. Oh, even we, meaning Jews, and Peter speaking, or Paul speaking to Peter, I mean Jew to Jew, even we have believed in Messiah Yeshua. Oh, that we might be justified by faith in Mashiach, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Powerful verse. With a lot more context to it than you might imagine. Paul makes it very clear to Peter here, and by extension to all the Galatians, that listen, we Jews, we know, even we know. You have Jews over here, you have the circumcised over here, uncircumcised here. Guess what? Both of them are saved in the same way. They're saved in the same way. Hence, this whole concept of the two becoming one, it's one to one. It's, they're only saved through Yeshua. The two become one, and they're saved through Yeshua. Now, here's what's interesting, the little backdrop to this. And the fact that Paul brings this up to Peter, you got to see how brilliant it is. What did Peter say in the Jerusalem council? Because we already cover it. He said the same thing. His testimony, when he rose up to testimony, he says, we believe that we're going to be saved in the same manner as they. Exact same thing that Paul just brings up. What is Paul doing? He's basically reminding Peter, remember this truth? Do you remember what you said? This is the truth. This is the truth of the gospel. And you look at this. You know, this, I'm going to tell you, this particular verse, this is kind of a turning point in the epistle. And I say that because now, guess what? Paul's brought the law to the table. The law is now into the discussion, which when you think about it, it was inevitable. This whole aspect was inevitable. You can't talk about whether or not Gentiles uh, have to be circumcised in the flesh, which is an actual commandment of the Torah, without bringing the law to the table. You're going to be forced. This is the only way to go. You have to bring the law and put it on the table, and you need to start talking about it. 
And what we're going to find in Galatians, that's exactly what Paul has to do. He's going to have to deal with how does this work? How does, what is the relationship between us and the law? What is the relationship between sin and the law? And what's the relationship between sin and us? Vice versa. What is it? And so this is the begin. He, he begins to ascent, if you will, to the mountain uh, right here. The first thing that we see here, as Paul brings the law to the table, the mo- he, he, he is so brilliant. Please appreciate the Apostle Paul and his brilliant writing style. Because when the law introduces into, he brings it to the table, he covers, he builds the foundation, he covers the most important thing in regard to what you need to understand in regard to the law. Period. And that is, you cannot be saved in and of yourself through works of the law. It can't happen. There is not a more important aspect of, to the relationship that we have with the law that you need to know than that. And I'm going to tell you, you don't get that right. You're going to build your doctrinal house. It's going to be completely on sand. And let me also tell you, whether you know it or not, you're wallowing in deception. And it's only a matter of time. It's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of time where you just find yourself in Orthodox Judaism. That's where you're going. You may delude yourself for a while, but this is just a pit stop for you. If you do not understand that we cannot be saved by our works, and any of you stand before Yeshua and say, man, I've done so much good, how can you not let me into the kingdom? All of us will be prostrate on our knees begging for mercy. This is the reality. And so Paul, in a brilliant fashion, he lays a foundation as he brings this law into the mix. Salvation only comes through faith in Yeshua. Amen? Why? We alluded to it before. Why? Because we read this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all failed. Because every one of us failed. This is why we can't be saved. By the very thing that we failed in. This is an aspect in regard to our relationship to the law that we've got To absolutely not just understand, but if you're going to be talking to others about the Torah, you better be taking heed to how Paul moves and in his wisdom and how you portray the Torah. The first thing you say, let me be clear, we cannot be saved by the law. If we could, what's the point of Yeshua coming, right? All right. So I want to go back and I highlighted just sake of time. Going back to to 2.16, Paul brings the law into the mix. Now, when we read this, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Messiah, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Let's be honest. Isolate this verse. And if you're just coming at it and you're looking at this verse, what, is it, what does it appear that Paul is saying about the law? Does it look like he puts a lot of emphasis in the law here? No. No, it doesn't. And I'll tell you, So many Christian pastors and even Christian scholars and teachers, one of the go-to verses, if you're going to be discussing whether you think, if you think the law is valid, well, you're going to be seeing Galatians 2.16. Most likely in the conversation, very quickly. Because you apparently don't understand how we're saved. And see, this is what Paul said. Paul made it very clear. We can't be saved by law. So when we look at this, you can see how they would come to this conclusion. The question is, is that what Paul is saying? Well, this is the beauty of Paul 
in, in his methodology. His, he has a particular teaching style. He writes in a specific manner. And I always make the joke, and it's not really hyperbole. I mean this. As much as I have invested into the Pauline epistles, and I don't even know how many hours, I have labored over them. What happens is you begin to start to know him. You start to see all these patterns that you never saw before. When you go through them, you never saw these patterns. But all of a sudden, you get to know them. It's just like, you know, when you're married to your spouse, and there are things over time, I know what she's going to say. Don't even say it. I know you're going there. How many of you husbands can finish your wife's sentences? I mean, we can, at times at least. And uh, vice versa. Our wives know us. It's interesting, it's the same relationship. That's the best way to describe it. When you get into the epistles of Paul, you get to know him so intimately. If they were to dig up an old manuscript and they were to plop it on my desk and say, this doesn't really have an author, would you read it? I could tell you if that epistle was written by Paul, just from the sense of how much time I've spent with him, he has specific literary techniques that he utilizes in his epistles. And this is where I'm going with this. This is very important. It's one of the most important things we're going to, we're going to be covering today. This statement in and of itself could be scary if you're attempting to defend the Torah as, as being legitimate. But here's the thing. Let's, let's go back to Peter. What did Peter say? Peter gave a warning in regard to the epistle of Paul. He said some of the things that he writes, they're hard to understand. That the untaught and unstable twist on the destruction. I want to be very clear about this. Could that be, is that true, that some of the things that, that Paul wrote are hard to understand? Yes, but I, listen to me carefully. Paul knew it. He knew that some of the things that he would be writing could be taken and twisted out of context. And how do we know this? Because he cleverly and brilliantly takes the time to throw what I call anchor statements when I start showing you these, it's going to blow your mind. He does it all the time. This is one of his literary devices he utilizes. He throws these anchor statements where he knows that you're going to go to this passage and say, law is done away with. I want to show you the anchor statement. And you think about, you know, when I grew up, I used to fish a lot. You know, my family was avid sportsmen and we'd go out on the lake and I was the guy. I always threw the anchor overboard. Why? I wanted to hold the position we needed to hold this position because this is where the fish are. We need to hold this position. Understand these anchor statements are to hold the position on doctrine. Don't go off. Don't get tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves. Hold the line. And that's the point of these anchor statements. Well, this statement has an anchor statement. I want to show it to you. And so moving to verse 17. But... Okay, so no, we're not justified by the law, only through faith. But while we, if while we seek to be justified by Mashiach, we ourselves are also found sinners. I want to stop here. As you're reading, it, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good if you don't know how to define the terms or you don't know what the terms mean. What is a sinner? Well, 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. See, if, if we want to read this in its proper context, we're going to look at this and he's going to say right at the front of verse 17, but if while we seek to be justified by Mashiach, we ourselves are also found lawless, 
the very essence of Wallace walking away from the law, were found sinners. He goes on, is Mashiach therefore a minister of sin? Oh, and here, certainly not. Meganoita means may it never be. What did he just say here? It's, it's powerful. This is the anchor. He just threw it over. He doesn't allow you to go off and say, oh, the law is null and void. It's done away with. He said this. He said, if you believe in Yeshua, you go out, you confess Yeshua. Oh, Yeshua, you're my Lord. You're my master. I'm your servant. You're my master. But I'm going to walk in lawlessness over here. Paul is saying, you're a blasphemer. You have just, because you're walking in lawlessness, but you're confessing the Holy Messiah, you have now made him a minister of lawlessness. You've made him a minister of sin. Should that be? Certainly, may it never be. God forbid. That should not happen. I want to build upon this. I want to give you guys some more anchor statements. And I want to show you this pattern of Paul. And what I want to do is I want to take you to the book of Romans. And one thing you need to understand about Romans is on a scholarly level, scholars will tell you this right up front. Romans is merely the expanded version of Galatians. That's all it is. It's just an expanded version of Galatians, a comprehensive version of Galatians. And this is why if uh, the scholars, they go into, they start talking about Galatians, they will set Romans right next to Galatians. They will study these things out together. And oftentimes you'll find pastors and teachers, if they're going to be studying Romans or Galatians, they will go back and forth. Well, I'm just going to warn you up front, this study that we're going to be doing in Galatians, we're going to be spending some time in Romans. Because it is the expanded, they're both the same themes. They're both dealing with the same things. And so what I want to do is I want to take you to Romans because I'm going to show you exactly what Paul just said in verse 16 and in verse 17. He also says in Romans. And so listen to this. And you guys know this one. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under law, but you're under grace. See, the Torah is done away with. We're not under the Torah and when you think about it, so many Christians, they look at this as like, that Torah has nothing to say to me anymore. I'm done with it. Bye. Put it in the back seat because now I'm under grace. Paul is brilliant. Remember his literary device, the anchor statement. Lest you be carried away into a different doctrine and twist what he's saying. He throws this anchor and this is what he says. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Oh, certainly not. Shall we sin? What is sin? Lawlessness, walking away from the Torah, because we're not, on, may it never be. You know, with the certainly nots, every time you see Paul use a certainly not, you know it's an anchor statement. There are times he doesn't use it where he is still providing an anchor, but every time you see a certainly not, it's not even a question. Pay attention. He just threw the anchor overboard. There's something he does not want you to misunderstand about what he is saying. Let me take you to another one. We'll jump ahead a little bit. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died, having died to what we were held by. It sounds like you've de you're dead to the law. It can't be any clearer. So that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, how many have you dealt with this passage as you're in this conversation, because you're dead to the law. And let's be honest, when, when we read this, isolate this verse. Yeah, I'm sorry. 
I mean, I, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but it's clear to me the law has nothing to do with myself, my, my life in general. I actually should throw it away. Paul knows this. He is not a fool. He is brilliant. He has this Holy Spirit inspired wisdom that is pro- so profound, he throws the anchor. Always pay attention. When you see people coming out and using particular passages of Paul and you know they're ripping them, go find the anchor because it comes right after. It always comes right ever. He doesn't even, we don't have to go far. We go to the very next verse. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? I want to stop for a second. Paul realizes what he just said sounds like he's calling the law sin. He knows this. Can we ask the question, how should Christians respond to sin? What should be our reaction? Turn your back on it. Right? That is our reaction as believers in Yeshua. You should be turning your back on sin. When you're confronted with sin, go the other way. That really makes this statement profound. Is the Torah sin? In other words, should I treat the Torah the way I treat sin? I turn my back on it. Should I run the other? Should I flee? Because this is what's happening with Christianity today. They're fleeing from the law. And of course, there's your anchor. Certainly not. On the contrary. So he just turned the other way. This is the anchor statement. On the contrary, he goes on. I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. What did he just tell us? He just flipped the whole thing up on its head. If you tried to say that the law is done away with, he flipped it up on its head. He threw that anchor and he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's actually the opposite. I'm not saying it should be dead to you. This is how you see. This is how you're given eyesight in a dark world. This is how you're going to know sin. Thy word is a lamp unto thy feet and a light unto the path. That's what the Torah, it's a light. Right? Proverbs 6.23, the commandment is a lamp. The Torah is a light. We read in in Hebrews chapter 4, that the the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It's a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Oh, now we're talking because the Torah has such power. What is the heart? It's the most deceitful thing on planet earth. The greatest lies that we ever receive are the ones we tell ourselves. It's so scary. The greatest manipulator we've ever met is you. The greatest one. You think about that. Yet the word of God is so powerful. It brings total discernment to every situation. Every situation. And remember Spurgeon, I love this. His wisdom says discernment's not a a matter of being able to tell the difference between right and wrong. Discernment's the ability to tell the difference between that which is right and that which appears to be right. They both look right. That's when you need the Torah. And you go to the Torah and say, I'm not equipped for this. We need the spirit of God. We need his word. We need the light in this darkness. And what's the whole point of having thy words a lamp unto thy feet and a light unto the path? So we don't stumble, right? We don't need to stumble. And so look at these anchor statements. Paul couldn't be clear. And yet it's amazing how believers can go to the text. They'll grab the main text 
The anchor gets cut off. And they're floating in the sea, tossed to and fro. It is scary. Let me continue. Romans 7 verse 9. I was alive once without the Torah. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Wow. And the commandment, which was to bring life. Why would Paul say the commandment was to bring life? Because that's exactly what the Tanakh says. Read Psalm 119.50. Your word has given me life. And so he says, the commandment, which was to bring life, oh, he found it to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, killed me. Oh, my goodness. You, you just read that. Again, isolate this passage. I was once alive without the law, but when the commandment came in, sin revived and died. It appears to me that the problem here is the commandment. You know, if I want to live a very free and loving life, I'll just get rid of the commandments. I don't got to worry about it. I mean, that's just, you read this, you just read it for what it is. And Paul is saying, well, it's the commandment that brings death. We're going to get into that, how that, how that could be a little bit more, I think, next week. I don't want to share too much on that. But you look at this passage, and it's just, it, it's, you can understand why Christian would walk away and going, I'm running. You say law, I'm turning my back. I'm getting out of here. I don't want death. But what does Paul continue to say? Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy, just, and good. Think about the characteristics of how Paul just described the Torah. Holy, just, and good. Does this sound like sin? Does this sound like something you want to flee from? Everything I've read in my Bible tells me I'm supposed to run to everything that is good. To everything that is holy. To everything that is just. Paul talks about Philippians. These are the things that I'm to be meditating on. We read in Deuteronomy, this is the commandments. We're to meditate on them. We're to talk of them when we walk in the way, when we lie down, when we rise up. They're, literally, our body is supposed to be saturated with the Torah. It's supposed to be saturated. It's supposed to be permeating out of us, out of our hands, out of our feet, out of our mouths. This is what's supposed to be happening. Verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? You think Paul recognizes? He's not foolish. He's not stupid. He understands the things that he says. Yeah, they sound a little crazy. But he says, certainly not. Anchor statement. This is his anchor. He throws it over. Has then what is good become death to me? No, may it never be. But then he goes to explain what he is saying. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Okay? Moving on to verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Oh my goodness, he's coming out with all these terms, these descriptors of how he, Paul, describes the Torah. And it doesn't sound anything like what the church is describing to me today. At all. Let's look at this. The Torah reveals sin. It brings life. It's holy, just, and good. Oh, and now he tells me it's spiritual. Think about that concept. You know, one of the things that you say is people will come up to you and say, well, oh, Daniel, you know, you, you want to talk about the Torah, but I'm under the spirit. I believe in the spirit. I was like, whoa. I can remember having this conversation with a particular gentleman. He's actually a leader in a church. 
And I said, are you aware that the law is actually spiritual? You, do you know that? And he had no idea. I brought him to this passage. He closed his Bible. He didn't know what to do with that. It really shocked him. And we talked and we prayed. It was good. But that blew his mind because he, as a believer in Yeshua, has never thought about the Torah in the context that it's spiritual. Well, that gets really profound when you start thinking about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and the promise that I would go out and I would write my Torah on their hearts. Spiritually would be written on their hearts. The Torah is totally spiritual. If you want to understand something important, understand, yes, it's holy. It is just, it is good. It is spiritual. It's eternal. Let me jump ahead to Romans 8. For to be carnally minded, meaning to be fleshly minded, is death. But to be spiritually minded, stop. What did he just say? Paul just said that the Torah is spiritual. Pay attention to what he's saying. Now he tells us to be spiritually minded is life in peace. To be Torah minded, it is life in peace. Because the carnal mind, the mind of flesh, is enmity, hatred. That's what it means, hatred against God. And why is it hatred against God? He tells us, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So when people say, I'm not under the law, I don't have to do the law, I don't want to hear about the law, I don't need to keep the law, I don't need to do anything, you just step back, whoa. We're dealing with flesh. We're dealing with the mind of flesh. And we're dealing with a pound of deception. This is the reality. Only those who are in rebellion, only those who are rejecting from hearing the voice of God, who want to walk away, they will refuse the Torah of God. Frightening. We're going to close going back to Galatians. And Paul, he threw that anchor statement. There's another component to this anchor. He says, for if I build again those things which I destroy, I make myself a transgressor, one who commits sin, one who is lawless. Think about what he's saying. We should not be dogs returning to our vomit. And again, I say, the Jews did not go out turning Gentiles into Gentiles. They went out to turn these Gentiles to live as Jews, to live in righteousness and holiness, according to what they were given at Mount Sinai. The commandments and the promises, the promises that are hidden in the prophets that would come. This is what they've been given. This is what is actually transpiring in the first century.